Just a heads up, this episode of Not Alone contains a personal story of mental health. If you or someone you know needs support, visit beyondblue.org.au or call our support service on 1300 22 4636. Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell and from Beyond Blue, this is Not Alone. Remarkable stories from everyday Australians about their mental health journey to help you with yours. And this episode is all about finding your purpose in life. I go to bed every night not wanting to be me, and I wake up the next day feeling the same way. I don't really feel anything anymore. I don't feel anything. I walk around like some sort of robot. I'm just numb. I often think that my life means nothing. I just want to feel something again. And I will never achieve anything. I'm going through life on its motions. Today it took me three hours to even get out of bed. But I'm not really there. I want to curl up in a ball and cry in darkness and push everyone away. What's the point in trying? 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 That was um, a dreadful experience that after 42 years of us sleeping together in the one bed, she wasn't there and would never be there. Everyone has a different idea about what their purpose in life is. And actually, a lot of us have never even considered that our life has a purpose. It's just a thing that we do, life. But for 87-year-old Noel, he knew what his purpose was. To be a loving husband and uh, father. I was very much tied around family. Um, Also, to be a good professional, to do a good job. At least, that's what he thought before 2004, when Noel felt like he lost his purpose. Now, to give a bit of context, the Noel you meet today is an incredibly fit and determined guy. He's now retired, he's written five books, and he's a dedicated volunteer. Nothing about this guy says lacking in purpose. But to understand, you need to go back 60 years to a dance at the Heidelberg Town Hall in Melbourne. And in those days, you, um, the boys used to get into suits. <laughs> we all had suits and the girls in their flowy dresses and that. And I just saw this tall girl on the opposite side of the hall and uh, I noticed she was knocking back the boys because in those days, of course, it was the boys who went and asked the girls, not the other way around. That would be you know, just not done. The girl was Maris. She was from a tiny country town near the Victoria and New South Wales border and was down in Melbourne studying midwifery. The night she met Noel was her first out in the big smoke. She told me then that actually she was waiting for a boy whom she'd danced with before. They went out and had a a milkshake, which she did then, at the milk bar and came back and he was just going to shift his car. And by the time I arrived, she decided she'd been stood up. Oh, <laughs> right place, right time, right suit. Right suits. time, it was perfect timing. So I danced with her every dance. And the rest, as they say in the classics, is history. This is Noel reading an excerpt from one of his books describing that time. One night, uh, some months later, we were parked, cosy in my orange Volkswagen Beetle facing St Kilda Beach. The moonlight glinted in the water. Our arms were around each other. 
I looked across and whispered, Maris, will you marry me? She whispered back to me, I couldn't think of anything nicer. For Noel and Maris, they made a warm and supportive life together. They had some hardships, particularly with pregnancies, but eventually raised four kids together in a loving home. Maris was a caring and compassionate mother, and Noel worked as a psychologist. Shortly before he retired, Noel took up a volunteer position with Lifeline, offering phone counselling to people in need of support. They gave him training around the right things to say and strategies to offer hope when it was needed most. Even back then, I always had this thought as to whether I would have to use them with Maris. She'd suffered depression, um, and she was, um, and it was getting worse. The, the, the periods would expand over the years. You know, mm. one time was two or three year, weeks, but then it, it got longer. And in the middle of the year, she decided she should um, see a psychiatrist. The year was two thousand and four. And in October, Maris and Noel's younger son was getting married. They were living in Sydney at this stage and with friends and family due to arrive for the celebration just the weekend after next. The excitement was high. On a Wednesday night, we went to the Opera House here in Sydney and saw the Mikado, delightful Gilbert and Sullivan show. And she really enjoyed it and she laughed and she loved watching the, the people, you know, and we drank champagne and that. On the Friday night, we were having a party at my daughter's place. All the family were there, and we were driving over, and on the way she wanted to go to hospital. And that put me in a real query, you know, here's the family waiting. Yeah. Uh, What shall I do? So I tried to persuade her, well, let's go to this, and then we'll, we'll see the next day about it. So she sort of said, right. The Saturday was going to be the Bucks party for my son and the Saturday morning she woke up not very well at all. Well, she never did. Mm. The morning was always very distressful for her, just coping with the um, getting up and facing the day. Part of the routine in the morning is that I'd squeeze a couple of oranges and put out two orange drinks there in the morning and... That's what I'd done. I'd squeeze the two um, orange juices and she went off without having an orange juice. And, and that was one of the alert signals that I had. She said she was off to um, change a book with a friend. Uh, but then I got this dreadful feeling as she went out and... Um, I followed her out to say, I'll come with you. But it was too late. Noel stood in his driveway and watched Mara's car disappear down the street. Hours later, police arrive and ask Noel to have someone drive him to the hospital. And there, he's informed that his wife of 42 years had taken her own life. 
the family immediately came together. How are you feeling? I think I was struggling with a denial that it really happened. And I think so was all of the um, the family. It was just a sense of complete, complete exhaustion, you know, like a numbness as a result of the catastrophes, mm. um, the tumultuous sort of nature of the day. We needed to be with each other. It was just everything had, everything had been destroyed. Um, then, of course, I got these massive feelings of guilt. Why guilt? Because I should have taken it to the hospital on bug of a family. Pardon. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, bug of a family, I should have just taken her straight to hospital when she said she wanted to go to hospital. I realised that night would be the first on my own. Maris would never share the bed with me again. I stood in the doorway staring at the bed. Despite her anguish that morning, she had made it neatly as she did every morning. It looked so ordinary. The next day, I decided we shall go to church. I decided we're going to tackle this thing full on, full frontally. And I can remember the look. They'd already knew, they'd already been told, you know, Maris mm. had just died and taken her own life. And, of course, they couldn't understand that because she kept it hidden. Uh, only a few knew. And even I heard one lady saying she couldn't have killed herself. That lady was in denial herself. So you had to handle that too. Yeah. And, of course, one of the other things that you had to do yourself was once you told people... Then you felt obliged to support them because they, they, they were feeling distressed themselves. So uh, and then I, I sometimes would think, you know, God, why, why are you doing this? You know, you should be back there nursing your own <laughs> um, grief. Whereas mm. here, here I was, back in lifeline mode. At the age of 72, Noel had lost the love of his life. His feelings of loneliness, of grief and guilt were intense. Oh, grief is very much a sort of a, a hollow um, feeling. It's uh, pretty much like um, your, your life fluids also being sucked out. I tried to visualise what life after 42 years of marriage would be like on my own. I couldn't. I resorted to self-deception. Maris was away and would be back. She was already up having a shower. She was downstairs having breakfast. In January of the next year, Noel decided to travel. It was a trip that he and Maris had planned to take together. And Noel hoped that fulfilling the plan would help with the grieving process. How did it feel to be travelling by yourself? Very often I saw a couple. Yeah. That was because we used to travel as a couple. But I used to say to myself, Noel, you've just got to get used to this. And, of course, as soon as I came back home, back to the empty house, bang, there was the grief just waiting, just waiting there. You just came. postponed it. It was just postponed, and it was dreadful then, lurking like a demon in the corner, you know. Yeah. I had to grab you. Yeah. I visited Maris's grave daily. I needed to talk to her. 
For 42 years, we'd chatted about the events of our day. I needed that to continue. I discussed all of my problems in these visits. After living with her for so long, I had a fair idea of her attitudes and responses to any question I was likely to put to her. Sometimes she would give me a serve, just as she used to when she reckoned I'd got things wrong. I would say, there's space for me in the grave, I'll join you, but I could hear her saying, not yet. A bit earlier you spoke about the the purpose you had in life, being a good husband and a, a mental health professional. Maris's death, I can imagine it would have been a real assault on your identity. I certainly lost that sense of of identity. Who was I? There was great confusion. I was uh, one of a couple, and we've been always like that, Maris and Noel, Maris and Noel, you know, it was always like that. Whenever we went anywhere, it was Maris and Noel, and now it's just Noel. Yeah, it certainly was a completely different sense of um, who I was and what I was on about. Grief wafted down every path and alleyway like an invisible cloud. It drifted into my lonely bed every night, wrapped itself around my dinner table, seeped under the door of my bathroom, settled on my computer, followed me to church and sneaked up from behind in most unexpected ways. After Maris died, Noel had immediately stepped back from his volunteer work at Lifeline. He felt he was too emotionally stirred up to offer the support that the job really required. Now, although still weighed down by those feelings of guilt and struggling to find direction, he made a decision. He was going to return to the phones to see if he could use his experiences to help others. They were all very caring and concerned, like people who are in Lifeline all are. And I was saying to one of my colleagues, these massive guilts that I didn't do enough for her. And um, she said to me, well, no, I'll think of the things you did do. As of, opposed to what you, what, what the guilt you were feeling about, what you, what what you I had didn't done, do. Of course. She said, think of what you did do. Mm. I thought, yeah, well, I did do a lot. And that, in a way, was a sort of like a turning point in my thinking. An opportunity came up to get some training in um, facilitating groups for people bereaved by suicide. And I was asked, would I like to get involved? So I said, absolutely. And then I started facilitating groups. And I had great admiration for these people, you know. In the main, they'd lost a child to suicide. And, And the group itself was great support for each other. And I used to feel I was making a contribution because not only was I on the same journey as them, I had the sort of like the training and facilitation which enabled them to come together and get the support. So I gained a great sense of satisfaction that I was doing something useful and using the experience of losing Maris Mm. there. Noel was beginning to find a reason to get up in the morning again. Once hitched to a life of being a decent family man, he was now finding purpose in being a support to others. And then, as an extension of that, he started writing again. 
The result being a book called No Way to Behave at a Funeral, a personal journey exploring Noel's experiences with grief, guilt, and learning to live without Maris. And then somewhere in the midst of all this, Noel decided to travel overseas again, this time with more verve and confidence that he could manage a solo expedition. Now, back when he was a younger man, Noel had enjoyed learning French, so he took himself to Chambéry in the French Alps to continue studying the language. And it was there that he became intrigued by the idea of walking the Camino Pilgrimage Trail across France and the north of Spain. Why did you think it was a good idea? Oh, I thought I'd like the idea of um, going on a pilgrimage, a bit of an adventure, um, the idea of long-distance walking. How long is it? Well, there's about 60,000 kilometres of Camino routes through um, Europe. Right. But the popular one through the top of Spain is about 700 kilometres. It's generally considered, if you do it in one go, it'll take you about... 40 days, 35 to 40 days. At night, bunked into one of the many hostels along the Camino trails, Noel meets others from all around the world and he makes these lifelong friends. He shares stories and revels in this human contact and camaraderie. During the day, he actually spends most of his time by himself with his own thoughts and experiences. And he starts to examine his guilt and this process of grief that he's been working through. He finds himself challenging his beliefs and his assumptions about his life. And of course, he also thinks about Maris, the person she was, and all of the things he could still learn from her. She was very compassionate, very caring, felt with the heart. And I think I sort of made this decision. I'm going to do my best instead of just thinking, how is it going to affect me? Mm. all the time, which I think I tended to do. I was trying to say, I'm going to try and reach out to others in the same way that Maris would reach. What did you find out about Noel that you didn't expect to find out Mm. when you walked the Camino? Uh, Noel is far more resilient than I thought he was. He's happy to accept that you take risks that the way that really lifts the mood for me is to talk to someone. It's possible to walk around and not see anything, but if you walk around with your eyes open and senses open, the world in many ways is a wonder. Uh, And the other thing I think is to never take anything for granted. Because, you know, one day Maris was there and then the next day she wasn't. And by reaching out to others, you've got tolerance, far more tolerance, far more respect, far more acceptance, I think. I think all of these were changes, I think, myself. And I see that as a combination of both of um, seeking to re-identify myself after Maris and internalising all of her values and also what the um, Camino has taught me. And it's an evolving, it's just ongoing, you know. I'll be doing this forever. Yeah. It's funny, when people talk about the concept of recovery, so often we talk about it as though you're you're trying to claw back to something that you were before. But it occurs to me listening to you that it's it's not really about going back. It's about no, building, not at all. It's about building something new, isn't it? No, it's com- completely new and it's completely evolving. And every... New experience has your impact, even just our talk here now is 
it's a new experience in, in itself. Uh, and this will evolve, and it's a continual process of um, renewal. I had lost Maris, but I'll never lose the years with her. From the evening I first met her at the Heidelberg Town Hall to the morning of her death. Even though she's gone, she's still part of my life and the family's. I remind myself that I should think more of her 66 years of life and the 42 years we had together and not dwell compulsively on the one moment of death. What do you think of as your purpose today? I think my purpose today is by just being me that I can communicate a message to others that it is possible to be resilient and recover from a catastrophe and associated with that, it's possible not to allow age to shut doors on you, but for them to be open. Admittedly, they might be different doors to what you would open when you were younger, but there are still doors to be opened for you to undertake sort of new challenges, to constantly be prepared to accept risk and to take challenges. It is possible. And I look at people of my age, and some, many of them, even much, much younger, you know, I'll meet somebody in their 50s and 60s, he tells me they're too old for this, and I'll tell it's bullshit. <laughs> 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 I might not tell them, but I'll think it. I'll think it. Uh, I think that's my purpose, as a model, yeah. and to give hope to people. I don't expect I'll solve their problems in any way. But if just by my contact and perhaps by, by my, my example, if that gives them a little bit of encouragement to, you know, keep pressing on, that's all you can ask for, really. There have been benefits from Maris's death just after she died in the first year. If anyone said to me what benefits or what opportunities, mm. I would have belted them. Yeah. I saw none. I, I saw nothing positive. But now, 15 years later, I can look back and see, okay, Maris's dying has opened up many, many opportunities which I would never have um, thought about or considered. What do you think Maris would say about the way you've rebuilt yourself and your life since she's gone? <laughs> She'd probably say, well, Noel, there's no need to talk about me so much. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think she'd be proud of what you've built? Oh, yes, I would think so. She would see my efforts to try and reach out and think about that other person first. She would see that as being very, um, very worthy. One of the things that really strikes me about Noel's story is that even at the time of Maris's death, he was getting on a bit in years. And according to Dr Grant Blaschke, Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, rediscovering your sense of purpose in the midst of that really intense grief at a late age, it's remarkably challenging. Hello, Dr Grant. How are you? Good, good. Good to see you again. Nice to see you too. Uh, this is not a small question, but 
how do you regain a sense of life, like a sense of purpose in life? Because, I mean, the thing that stands out to me listening to Noel is that obviously imagining a future seemed quite hard for him. Is that common? Well, I think that his story, which was very intimate and it was amazing to hear him share what he'd been through, it just illustrates how in his particular case, he found a way to find meaning in it. I think for someone who's lost a loved one to suicide, it's a very difficult time and there's all sorts of feelings they may have, you know, anger, guilt, should I have done more, you know, uncertainty about their role in their life. Like it's a really massive time of challenging and rethinking things. I think some of the lessons that we could hear from Noel was was that, first of all, there's no fixed time course. Like these things can take, Mm. can be an ongoing thing, you know. There's no one way to react. But I think in his case, he really found some meaning and felt that helping others with their similar experiences was something that he could really do. The person who is impacted by the suicide of a loved one, how do you guide someone through that grief in those immediate days, weeks, months that come afterwards? So I think you've got to use a bit of common sense and a bit of judgment with that person. Listening, you know, just sit back and listen. Probably providing little sort of cliches is not that helpful. Mm. You know, I'll be strong, you'll be fine. It sort of glosses over it. So give people time to process it. Recognise that they'll have good and bad days. You know, they may want to talk about it and then they don't want to talk about it. Practical support, particularly in the early stages, anything from, you know, arranging funerals to informing other people about what's happened to filling up the pantry with food. So practical support can be really helpful too. But ultimately, it's that uh, being there for people and being able to help them. And I I think, uh, you know, we know that suicide is unfortunately quite common in Australia, you know, more than 3,000 people a year. So this affects so many people in the community who are often very heartbroken and trying to make sense of it all. What is it about Noel's story that's going to stay with you? I think what I really found moving about Noel's story was the transformation. And and he's an incredible role model to older people about not being caught up in the, the stereotype of either just being an old person who's rigid and can't do new things. He was really remained open to reinventing himself. And I really enjoyed that about him. Dr. Grant, it's lovely to talk to you again. Great to talk. I had to make many adjustments. I could not grit my teeth and pretend uh, nothing had happened. I had to overcome a fear of an uncertain future and a sense of hollowness. Maris's death is part of my life and I have arrived at a more or less peaceful acceptance. My existence has a new meaning. I have wounds that may never heal, a sense of loss that may never leave me. I can't say that I'll ever stop grieving for Maris. I've just got used to the idea of her not being around. Doors have been shut, but at the same time, others have opened. I have grown. I have a purpose in my life, something to look forward to. (laughs) 
I do want to say a massive thank you to Noel for sharing his story. And you can join the conversation and share your story anytime you want at beyondblue.org.au slash forums. If you or someone you know needs support, you can visit our website that I just mentioned. Also, there is a support service you can call on 1300 224636. We've also included resources in our show notes that you can find there. Not Alone is a Beyond Blue podcast. It's hosted by me. I'm Mark Vanell. It's produced by Sam Loy and executive produced by Darcy Sutton, Sarah Alexander and Tom Ross. This podcast was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri, Boonwurrung and Gadigal country and we pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you for listening to Not Alone.